What's up everybody, GenX Dividend Investor here. In this intriguing video, I go over whether I should be concerned about my top three dividend paying stocks of the 27 I own. I'll also share some information that I think will blow your mind. So please show your support by hitting that thumbs up button, subscribing if you haven't yet, and clicking that bell notification. Okay, if you're new to my channel, then the quick TLDR is that I've been investing in the stock market for about 30 years, and a few years ago I officially retired from working around when my dividend income was more than my expenses. I started my YouTube channel four years ago as a way to document my investing thoughts for my kids, and as time went on I really began to enjoy doing social media stuff as a hobby, and now I feel like one of my purposes in life is to help educate the world on dividend investing and financial literacy. I also like the fact that my social media platforms let me show my kids how someone can start something from scratch online, put a lot of work into it, and see it grow. I actually hardly watched YouTube other than for comedy sketches before I started my channel, and basically never went on Twitter or Instagram, and had only ever used Discord when I was raiding in WoW and Albion Online, and I'd never done any video creation before I uploaded my first video, so this whole experience has been a fun learning journey for me. And as a gamer who's always liked to see his character stats go up, it's fun to see things like my number of subscribers, view time, and revenue and such also go up, even though money isn't my biggest motivator for doing my channel. One thing that does motivate me is knowing that my videos and stuff will last even when I'm gone, kinda like I'm grateful that my dividend portfolio will continue providing for my family even if I'm not around. Anyways, a few weeks ago I did a video called $100,000 per year of dividend income, where it was neat to show you all my stocks in fidelity after hitting a big dividend income milestone of 6 figures a year. Note that's US dollars, which is equivalent to $132,000 a year for my Canadian friends. And as I was doing that video, I started wondering if my top three positions by income, which are about 32% of my annual income, represent too much risk for me given the amounts they generate relative to my whole portfolio, along with concerns about the industries they're in. But before I go into all that, I first want to quickly recognize my all-star Patreons with this picture I made, i.e. those patrons that have been signed up to me for over a year and continue to stay on board. I plan to update and include this all-star list in the shoutout section of all my videos as a token of my appreciation, beyond my scrolling news ticker and their original shoutouts. Okay, now let's jump into it. Here's a snapshot of my dividend portfolio in my spreadsheet product that I offer as a monthly service to my Patreon aristocrats and kings. I've sorted it by the highest amount of dividends paid out per year, as opposed to market value like I normally do it. I took this screenshot on Monday, July 10th. You can watch my other videos if you want to see each of my positions in Fidelity, along with things like my portfolio's average weighted dividend CAGR, estimated income growth over time, etc. Eagle-eyed longtime viewers might notice that we moved the logo column to the right of where it used to be, which makes it easier to correlate specific market values and paydates and such to the stock in question. Okay, and the stock on top of this sorted list which pays me the most is Altria, ticker MO, and it yields almost $14,000 a year in income, i.e. $3,481 per quarterly payout. And since my overall portfolio generates 100 k a year, that means that Altria is about 14% of my annual dividend income, which is quite a bit, so some concentration risk there. Interestingly, Altria is only about 6% of my portfolio by market value, at around 170 grand, and my largest position by market value is actually my lowest yielder in Apple, where I have about 329 grand of it, yet it only yields 1668 bucks a year, so it's closer to the bottom on this sorted list. My second largest position by market value is Microsoft, where I have about 261 grand of it, but it's also a low yielder bringing in only about 2100 bucks a year. It's important to understand that I'm not just an income investor, but I'm also interested in total return, so kinda a hybrid approach, and I've been rewarded nicely with stock appreciation over the years. So my portfolio's average weighted starting yield is only a tad over 3.5%, 
which is about what you might expect from a conservative blue chip investor who has a few higher yielders mixed in. And before you leave me a comment telling me how I should just sell everything and go into CDs or savings accounts and such because they're yielding more than 5%, I ask you to first watch my video called Why I Chose Not to Make $325,000 in Dividends to gain a better understanding of the reasons why I wouldn't do that. Okay, back to Altria, which has its ticker MO highlighted in green, along with its pay date and dividends per pay period, because my spreadsheet automatically color codes those fields in green if today's date is its payout date, which it was when I took the screenshot. It highlights those fields in cyan if the stock is paying out within a week, yellow if it's within a month, otherwise it remains white. So at a glance I can quickly tell which stocks are paying today, like Altria, and I can see that Realty Income and PM pay out within the week, and TD Bank pays out within 30 days. As someone who is retired on dividends, I find it helpful having those visual cues so I can quickly know how much income is flowing in and when. Anyways, let's jump into Fidelity for a sec so we can see my Altria payout that just happened. So here's a screenshot of the Activity tab that shows recent dividend history in my accounts. What we see is that my taxable account got an Altria dividend today for $2,659, and then my retirement account got one for $421, and my wife's retirement account that I managed got one for $400, bringing the total to that $3,481 amount that we saw in my spreadsheet. My spreadsheet automatically adds dividend transactions into the spreadsheet based on if you've selected them to show up as drips or cash or whatever. You can also see that my current portfolio total value is at 2.82 million US dollars, with my IRA holding 1.26 million dollars of dividend stocks, my taxable holding 1.39 million, and my wife's retirement account holding 170 grand of dividend stocks. Now beyond Altria's percentage of income it pays out being a concern, another obvious concern is the industry it's in. Tobacco is clearly trending down, on average, so what I believe is that Altria's management team will be able to keep pivoting to other less dangerous product categories like heat to burn. It's pretty clear that regulations are shooting up all over the world, with some countries basically outlawing smoking for some segments of the population, all of which is more risks to consider. Like New Zealand passed a law permanently banning the sale of cigarettes to anyone born in 2009 or after, essentially elevating the legal smoking age year after year until no one can smoke. They're also reducing the number of stores even allowed to sell cigarettes. Couple that with the fact that more and more countries are banning smoking in public places, along with people's general better understanding of health and the dangers of smoking, all of which means cigarette sales and consumption are generally declining. That being said, take a look at Altria's dividend summary on Seeking Alpha. They have a current yield of over 8%, a payout ratio of 76%, which I'd normally say was high, but in Altria's case it's what the management team is driven to and is capable of supporting, at least historically speaking. They have a decent 5-year growth rate of about 6.7%, and an incredible 53 consecutive years of dividend increases. Many longer time dividend investors own Altria and enjoy its nice income, though I wouldn't recommend younger investors go with it as they don't see material growth probabilities unless they really innovate new products. Anyways, the TLDR is that the overall cigarette volume is declining, generally speaking, so they counter that with price increases and new product innovation. Like the number of cigarettes sold in the US fell from nearly 400 billion in 2001 to about 204 billion in 2020. Interestingly, 2020 witnessed an increase in sales for the first time since 2004, although growth was a marginal 0.4%. My guess is that the pandemic brought on stress, and stress led to more smoking. So is it too risky to have that amount of my income coming from Altria and other SIN stocks? Well it is risky, but part of my thought is that if something happened to Altria's payout, then one easy option I have would be to sell some of my lower yielding stuff and put those proceeds into higher yielding stuff, like maybe Devo, which is a ticker I don't own yet but I'm thinking about getting. 
That being said, let me throw some double negatives at you and say that I'd bet dollars to donuts that Altria will not only not cut the dividend, but I'm guessing they'll raise their dividend next month, as they historically have announced their increases in August, more late July, and I'd guess it will be in the 4-5% range. For reference, my favorite site to use when you want to know when companies historically have announced their dividend hike is Street Insider, as that one shows the announced date and not just the date it actually increased. Now some of you might leave me a comment saying that a 5% Altria hike isn't even keeping up with inflation, and my response to you would be to not tunnel vision on this single raise, and instead look at Altria's average annual raise over the last 5-10 to 10 years relative to inflation's average, and I think you'll find that it's been handily beating inflation as the years went by. Besides, inflation just came out today at around 3%, so it's time to celebrate, right? Now another risk to consider is that I get about 25% of my annual dividend income from my 3 cent stocks in MO, PM, and BTI. You can also see that energy stocks are about 17% of my income, followed by consumer stables at almost 14%, and then healthcare at 11%. So 25% from cent is high, but it's something I'm still allowing for now. That doesn't mean you should do it, it's just me. Okay, let's move on to my next highest pair, and this one is in another sector in energy, and I'm talking about Enterprise Products Partners, ticker EPD. EPD is an MLP which provides midstream energy services to producers and consumers of natural gas, natural gas liquids, crude oil, petrochemicals, and refined products, aka a pipeline company. If you aren't aware of how MLPs work, then watch a video I did called BDCs and MLPs and REITs, oh my, where I explain things for you, like that they don't technically pay a dividend, but instead they call it a distribution, and it's taxed differently, and blah blah blah. Anyway, EPD pays me $9,375 a year in lovely dividend income, or distribution income, and for me it's basically tax-free for the next decade-ish, if my understanding is correct. That means EPD is about 9% of my dividend income, so not too much in my opinion, but something to be aware of. One obvious risk to EPD is how a lot of the industry has been transitioning to renewables and EVs and such. EPD is branching out into new revenue streams, but they, like all companies, have some risks to be aware of. I think they'll be fine for my life, but again not something I'd put into my kids' accounts. Now as I was working on this section of the video, I got a Seeking Alpha alert that EPD just announced a 2% distribution increase over its Q1 amount, which represents a 5.3% increase of where they were last year. That also means that EPD just had its 25th consecutive year of distribution growth, which means it would be part of the classic dividend aristocrats list on the wiki, if it could be part of it. Unfortunately, that list has a requirement that stocks be part of the SP500, and the SP500 excludes some of the more exotic businesses like MLPs and BDCs, so EPD won't be counted as an official dividend aristocrat, even though it effectively is. By the way, EPD repurchased 2.9 million of its common units in the open market during the second quarter of 2023 for a total purchase price of approximately 75 million. Inclusive of these purchases, the partnership has utilized 41% of its authorized $2 billion buyback program. Nice. Now this portfolio screenshot I took didn't include that small 2% hike they just did, so my dividend income is actually up another 200 bucks a year. I gotta say I absolutely love the fact that I keep getting dividend raises month after month for not doing anything other than holding solid companies. Truly amazing, and that's another reason why I appreciate Seeking Alpha so much, because I love getting news alerts about dividend hikes in real time. And the next alert I expect to see any day now will be a small raise coming from Duke Energy, probably something that will increase my income by 75 to 100 bucks a year. Okay, with that let's move on to my third largest dividend payer, and that's Realty Income Ticker O. I get $8,725 a year from Realty Income, which means I'm pulling in $727 a month from it. Sweet. Realty Income is about 6% of my portfolio by market value, and 8.7% of my portfolio's total income, which I feel is reasonable. 
A key risk to realty income comes from rising interest rates in their business model. As rates go up, then O's stock price often gets downward pressure, so I happily DCA a bit into it when I have spare investable cash and it's under 60 bucks a share. I love owning real estate assets where I don't have to deal with tenants and lawsuits and maintenance, etc. Now, one of the challenges for realty income will be to continue to grow in profitable ways. I'm pretty excited about O's foray into vertical farming, as that has huge upside, pun intended, and I also see more potential in gaming, along with more aggressive international expansion opportunities. They've had some pretty nice margins and cap rates over the years, and I think it'll be a challenge for them to keep doing as well as they have historically, but I'm still holding on for the ride. One thing going for Realty Income is their high credit rating, relative to pretty much any other read out there. Like O is A- rated, as compared to NNN, which is BBB+, or Digital Realty Trust, which is BBB, or Vici, which is BBB-. Credit rating is important because companies like Realty Income either need to issue shares or need to borrow funds to get capital to acquire new properties to grow. So when interest rates go up, that makes borrowing more expensive, especially to companies whose credit ratings aren't that hot. Of course, REIT yields aren't as sexy to investors when you can get short-term treasuries and CDs with high rates and less risk, all of which acts as downward pressure on O's stock price. Which is also why you can see some downward pressure on utilities these days, i.e. because you can get good yield with less risk in other assets. My guess is that as rates trend down, we may see upward movement in O's stock price, assuming growth is occurring. Their management team has been making great strategic moves, including getting out of office spaces, so I'll continue to bet on them, and it's clear they're playing for the long term, which aligns to my investing philosophy. And that reminds me of this neat animation I saw on Twitter from a user named Travis Gatzmeyer, who apparently is a certified financial planner. The caption says, if you want to become a better investor, watch this video. It's about how time, and a strategy you can stick with, is better than timing the market. What we see is an animation of $10,000 invested into the stock market in 1992 until now. As you'd expect, the markets trend up, then we have huge corrections, and then we trend up again. In my experience, it's during those huge corrections where we cans get panicked out of the market. Like I've been through the dot-com crash and the global financial crisis, now the pandemic. And many people quit investing during each of those trying periods, but if you can simply hang on, or better yet, if you can keep investing even when things look terrible, then that's when you can make a lot of money. It's during those worst times when you've got to have the fortitude to do the smart thing. And be wary of people complaining about how the markets suck and instead just keep investing. If you can just master your emotions, then odds are in the future you'll be glad that you didn't panic sell. Master your emotions and you'll be on the path towards wealth, a path that very few people achieve because they won't spend time learning, nor will they have the patience to get rich slowly. Lots of things rattle people out of the market. Like these days, there's a lot of understandable freakout about a potential worldwide recession. Will we have one? Will there be a soft landing? Did we already land? No one knows, and you'll find people on both sides of the argument, but lately I've noticed more people are becoming bullish, on average, whereas before there were more bears. For example, listen to this recent CNBC interview. Yet the bull run isn't over yet, according to our next guest, Ed Clissold, chief U.S. strategist at Ned Davis Research, sees two major market forces that should drive the next leg of the rally. Ed, uh, good to see you. I know you, you know, probably been contending like everybody who's watching this market with some mixed messages, right? It was a, uh, a pretty good rally off the October low, but it didn't necessarily check off all the boxes to say this is a, a true high momentum bull market. Uh, but what are you seeing in your signals that embolden you to maybe nudge equity exposure up? recently. Uh, yeah, yeah, thanks, Michael. Uh, we, we have been overweight equities since January, and we added a little bit more exposure earlier this week. And there are two reasons for that. One, 
is that a fair criticism of the rally coming off of the Silicon Valley bank debacle was it was very narrow, just a handful of stocks were driving all the gains, but that's changed. It's broadened out considerably. If you look at percentage of stocks above their 50-day moving averages, that's gotten well above 75%. If you look at percentage of sub-industries, there's about 150 sub-industries, almost 80% of them are in uptrends. So that's a pretty broad rally. And the second thing is that there's been this concern over a looming recession because growth has been weak, the Fed's been so aggressive. But the recent economic data, if you look at the jobs data today, the ISM services uh, report uh, the other day and some other economic data, and it's suggesting that an imminent recession um, risk is, is pretty low. So maybe that could happen next year, but the, that enables the rally to continue for a little bit longer, even if the Fed does raise rates in a few weeks. So definitely bullish sentiment. In fact, I just saw this article from billionaire Ken Fisher where he said, don't be duped by doomsayers. This mega cap led surge has legs. Basically, the market has looked very strong this year, led by the mega caps, i.e. the huge companies, with the tech giants largely responsible for the surge in the SP 500. Like Apple is up over 50% year to date. Microsoft is up around 40% year to date. Luckily, they're my largest positions. But seeing those tech mega caps go up has led many commentators to issue warnings about the lack of market breadth driving the gains, with many believing it indicates that the market is a lot more fragile than it looks. Or to say that differently, some people are worried that there isn't more of a distribution of stock market gains across more sectors. But Ken Fisher of Fisher Investments disagrees and says, This is what we call fear of a false factor. False fear is always hurting prices in a given moment, setting the stage for spring-loaded gains. Bad breadth is the latest such false fear. And it screams that this mega cap led surge has legs, maybe not this week or this month, but fully through 2023. So the rally, according to Fisher, is set to push ahead. But another billionaire in Ray Dalio, the founder of the world's largest hedge fund, Bridgewater, has said that the world is soon headed for a period of serious economic problems, and that we should brace for a 1930s style of economic disorder, especially if interest rates keep climbing. He believes that is likely to happen due to three factors. The first is that the world has never been as indebted as it is today. The second is that populism, driven by income inequality, has become the order of the day in all too many places, including the United States. And finally, third, the rivalry between major powers like China, Russia, and the United States has echoes of the world geopolitical tensions experienced in the first half of the 20th century with the rise of Germany as an economic powerhouse. So let's talk about debt real quick. According to the Institute for International Finance, world debt at the end of 2022 hit a record 300 trillion, or some 350% of world GDP. Then here's the national US debt, year over year, and we're over 30 trillion in debt right now. What you'll find is that both political parties have a tendency to drive up debt, and until sides compromise to rein in their respective sacred cows, then debt will keep going up. This infographic about US debt is useful to review. It shows us that we pull in about $4.9 trillion of revenue, coming mostly from income and payroll taxes, but we spend about $6.3 trillion, going to programs like Social Security, Health, Defense, Medicare, etc. Since we spend more than we take in, we have about a $1.4 trillion annual deficit, which then increases our national debt. Looking back over the last 50 years, some events which materially contributed to the debt included the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the 2008 financial crisis, and the 2020 pandemic. And as a quick refresher, you might ask yourself, who owns U.S. debt? Well, there are two kinds of debt. Number one, intragovernmental, of which there's about $6.9 trillion worth, and number two, public, at $24.5 trillion. Intragovernmental is debt held by the Federal Reserve and Social Security and other government agencies. 
Public debt is held by the public, i.e. individual investors, institutions, and foreign governments. The national debt held by the public is held in treasury bills, notes, and bonds. And this graph here highlights what I think will blow your mind. Specifically what I'm talking about is that the largest holder of U.S. debt is the government? WTF? Why would the government owe money to itself? Well, the answer is because some agencies, like the Social Security Trust Fund, have historically taken in more revenue from taxes than they need. These agencies then invest in U.S. Treasuries rather than bury the cash in my backyard. If you were to add the debt held by Social Security and all the retirement and pension funds, almost half the U.S. Treasury debt is held in trust for retirement. Current and future retirees would probably be hurt the most if the U.S. ever defaulted on its debt. In fact, two-thirds of public debt is held by domestic holders, which is fascinating to me. So my point is that most people would probably think that the majority of U.S. debt is owed to foreign countries, when the truth is that most of it is owed to Social Security and pension funds right here in the U.S., which also means that U.S. citizens own most of the national debt. Crazy, huh? Other holders of public debt include insurance companies, U.S. savings bonds, private pension funds, banks, etc. But after intragovernmental holdings, the next largest category is indeed national debt held by foreign governments. Of those, Japan has the most, followed by China. Now, if you dig into our debt trends over time, you'll see various reasons why our tax revenues haven't been keeping up with spending, beyond just because spending has been going up. Remember, there's money coming in and money going out to spending. When we do tax cuts or there are tax loopholes, then that obviously impacts money coming in. Take a look at average corporate tax rates in the U.S. over time. What you'll see is that on average, corporate tax rates have trended down in the U.S. over the last 50 plus years, down to about 21% right now. That doesn't mean you should knee-jerk raise corporate taxes, as that can cause other behavior you might not want, but it does help explain why the revenue side of the equation is getting hit, just like spending is which can contribute to more deficits and debt than ever. Anyways, how do our 21% average corporate tax rates compare to other industrialized countries? Well, in Japan, it's about 31%. In Australia, it's 30%. Germany, 30%. France, 28%. China, 25%. Then Russia's at 20% and the UK is at 19% to give you a cross-section of countries. So one TLDR is that our corporate tax rates have been trending down, which then generally means less tax revenues coming in, further throwing us out of whack when our spending keeps going up. Now let's take a look at federal tax rates for people, and specifically let's focus on the top rate, which only the very highest earners pay. What you'll see is that since the 1960s, the top rate has also trended down. So like back in the 50s, the top rate was 90%, believe it or not i.e. for the very small percentage of people that earn the big bucks, 90% of it would get eaten away versus now at about 41%. And is that good or bad that it's trended down? Well, there are pros and cons to everything. The key point is that the math doesn't add up if we keep increasing spending and or decreasing the taxes we take in. Some people think it's just a spending problem, and clearly spending is a problem. Other people think it's just because the rich don't pay enough as a percentage of their income, and that perspective also has some valid points. In reality, there are lots of perspectives out there, but whatever you think, what you should be able to see is that our debt keeps trending up, and so to Dalio's points, things aren't trending in a direction that leads to a healthy country. Which begs the question, is the U.S. putting itself into a riskier and riskier state? And if so, then are my top three income-producing stocks, and in fact most of my portfolio, also going into a riskier and riskier state, since I'm very U.S.-centric in the companies I own? I mean outside of British American Tobacco and Toronto Dominion Bank, basically all in on US-based companies. My answer to that risk is I don't think so, for multiple reasons. First is because I believe the US will figure a way to deal with these challenges, and second is because a material portion of the revenue of my stocks comes externally. 
Like McDonald's is a large position of mine, and it gains more of its revenue outside of the US than inside. I also have a six-figure position in Procter & Gamble, and it generates 51% of its revenue outside North America. My fifth largest position by market value is J&J is similar, with about 50% of its revenue coming internationally. My largest position at Apple is no different, with the majority of its revenue coming from outside the US. So I think the risk of being too US-centric isn't one I'm too worried about. Now beyond all that stuff I mentioned, I also have some other risks to my portfolio, like I'm currently underweight in certain sectors relative to the overall market, specifically in the materials and industrial sectors, and I'm obviously way overweight in equities versus other assets. Plus I'm all in on dividend stocks, and I'm no longer holding any non-dividend stocks, so that's another risk aspect to consider, though again I'm not too worried about that given my goals and needs. Bottom line, while I have a variety of risks in my portfolio, I'm not planning on making any material changes to my top three largest dividend payers at this point. But please leave me a comment telling me your thoughts, along with what concerns you have about your portfolio and positions, if any. Whatever you do, my generic advice is to invest in quality companies, regardless if they have a dividend or not. And with that, I'd like to jump into my shoutout section, where I want to recognize my new upper tier Patreons who've signed up. And before doing that, I first want to show my all-star Patreon screenshot again, i.e. those that have been longtime members that haven't canceled. My Patreon kings are my highest tier of supporters, followed by aristocrats and then champions. I color-coded names based on how long they've been a patron, and people who've been a supporter for more than one year but less than two I put in orange, and patrons in the two to three year range I list in white, and my longest supporters who've been with me for over three years I put in bright yellow. Thank you folks, I really appreciate your support. And now I'd like to shout out my newest Patreon king who just signed up for an entire year in Cookie Monster, which puts him just shy of the greater than one year mark to make the all-star list. Kings get to have 30 minute private monthly voice chats with me on my Discord to talk about whatever they want. Kings also get everything aristocrats get, which includes access to my dividend spreadsheet product that I use in many of my videos, and they gain access to multiple private channels on my dividend Discord chat server, where I let my upper tier Patreons watch my videos before I release them to the public, as well as let them vote on which thumbnails I use for my videos, and of course they get more direct access to me. I also add my upper tier Patreons to my scrolling news sticker, if I still have space on it. Finally, I'd like to recommend everyone out there consider using my Seeking Alpha affiliate link, which usually gives you extra perks when you use it and sign up to their service. I personally paid for Seeking Alpha Premium for multiple years because they're the best stock website on the internet and now I'm grateful that they sponsor me when I talk about them. Whatever you do, please consider hitting that thumbs up button, subscribing if you haven't yet, and clicking that bell notification. And I highly recommend that you join my free Dividend Discord chat server, which has over 10,000 dividend investors on it from 76 countries around the world. Thanks for watching, stay positive, and I'll talk to you again real soon. I am not a financial advisor and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I am only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.